college is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. I'm Larissa Bianco, and I hope you are having a wonderful Advent season so far. Today on the Magnus Podcast, once again, I'll be bringing you a sneak peek into our fall courses that just finished this week. We offered a Tolkien course. We offered a Latin course. We offered a course on Rousseau and the imagination. And the course that I'm giving you today was from Dr. David Arias on the philosophy of man. So today, once again, I hope you enjoy this first half of the first lecture of eight courses. As always, magnusinstitute.org for more. All right. Well, thanks, Larissa. Yeah, welcome to everyone. Uh, yeah, as as you know, my name is uh, Dr. David Arias, and I've been with uh, Albertus Magnus Institute uh, pretty much from the beginning. I've taught a number of classes here. I've taught uh, what let's see a, a natural philosophy class, a couple classes on metaphysics, one on natural theology, and then um, I'm doing this one uh, for the first time with you all. So. It's a pleasure to be back. I'm looking forward to this class with you guys. I think the uh, material that's been selected for this class, not by me, but by whoever set up the curriculum, is great stuff, and I hope you enjoy it. I, I think I'm going to enjoy it as I get to go through it again uh, with you all. So uh, let's, yeah, without further ado, let's go ahead and, and begin with a prayer and jump on in. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. St. Albert the Great, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So let me just begin by saying a few things uh, so as to introduce the class a bit. I don't know if you all uh, saw the, uh, the, the course uh, website on the, on the AMI uh, uh, page. Uh, you, you may have. Uh, on the course website, there's, there's a brief introduction or brief description of what we'll be doing. Let me just kind of summarize uh, more or less what that says. So uh, we're going to build on on Aristotle and St. Thomas's philosophical insights uh, concerning the human person. And uh, in so doing, we're going to attempt to take an in-depth look at St. Thomas's teachings on man's end or final cause, uh, as these teachings are laid out in the first five questions of the Prima Secundae, the first part of the second part of the Summa Theologiae. And we're also going to attempt to appropriate these teachings uh, in our own lives by, by ending this class, uh, in, by spending the last two uh, course uh, meetings, doing a slow and careful reading of Joseph Pieper's great little book called Happiness and Contemplation. Okay, So basically, the, the breakdown of our, of our meetings will, will be as follows. Well, tonight, of course... Uh, there wasn't any required reading, so I'm just going to more or less give sort of an introduction, uh, a brief overview of Aristotle and St. Thomas's understanding of the human person. That's what we'll be doing tonight. And then uh, for classes two through six, we'll be going through questions one through five of the, the Prima Secundi, the first part of the second part of the Summa. So we'll just have one question for each week. Okay, So for next week, We'll be reading question one from the Prima Secundae for the week thereafter, question two, and so on, until we finished uh, those, those first five questions. Now, many of you probably own your own copy of the Summa. Uh, if you don't, uh, not all is lost. You can, you can find the Summa online 
in different places uh, for free, both in English and in Latin, if you're so inclined uh, to read it in Latin. Uh, one place where you can where you can find the whole text is at www.newadvent.org. Okay, if we go to uh, newadvent.org, it's uh, they they typically have links to uh, articles of, of interest to Catholics, you know, uh, Catholic news and things like that, and you can you can click at the Summa, you can click on the Summa tab in the right hand column. Okay, so that's that's one place that you can go. It looks like Luke may have uh, given us a link to yet another place, and and I think on the course site there's a link to yet another place uh, online where you can find the the Summa in English and in Latin side by side. Uh, thank you very much, Larissa, for putting that there. That's right there. So yeah, any of those are are good places to go to get the text that we'll be reading. Okay. So again, classes uh, two through six will be dedicated to uh, going through questions one through five of the Prima Secundae. And then we're going to reserve the last two classes, uh, classes uh, seven and eight, for uh, our reading of Joseph Pieper's Happiness and Contemplation. And I didn't bring my book to class tonight, alas. Uh, I'll try to do it next week just so I can give you the breakdown. We're basically going to read half of it for Austin Luke's got it. We're going to basically read half of it for uh, for class seven and the other half uh, for class eight. So we'll, we'll figure that out as we get a little bit closer to that, uh, to that part of the class. Okay. So that's again, kind of the breakdown of what we're going to be doing over these, these weeks that we have together. And again, tonight, I just want to give you guys something of a brief overview of Aristotle and St. Thomas's understanding of the human person. This will be mostly a philosophical overview but there will be a few theological truths added in. And then just in terms of, of how I, I envision uh, things going during each of our meetings, this is what I've done in the past, and it's worked, uh, I think, tolerably well. Basically, I've, I've attempted to more or less uh, lecture for a, about the first hour. Okay, these, uh, we're, we're together for up to two hours uh, each week, so I've attempted to lecture for about an hour, and then we, we take a a 10 minute break uh, right at the about the hour mark or you know thereabouts that gives you an opportunity to to grab a stiff drink or or a coffee or whatever through the second part of the class we come back after after 10 minutes and then uh, usually we just start with with a discussion okay with with Q&A or if you want to you know circle back to some things that maybe I, I I mentioned or things that were in the reading or whatever that's a great opportunity uh, for us to do that, okay. So that's more or less uh, how we'll we'll do things tonight, and then hopefully it'll go well, and we can more or less follow that uh, during our next meetings over these over these coming weeks. Okay, so with that as a as an introduction, let's let's get to this overview of Aristotle St. Thomas's understanding of the human person. What I wanted to what I want to do to begin is I want to situate the human person, man, uh, within the context of reality. Okay, I think that's a good place to, to start. So uh, at the pinnacle of reality, as you know, there lives the uncreated, eternal, infinitely perfect triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Utterly dependent on the triune God, as on uh, their first cause, there live and exist in the realm of creation the nine glorious choirs of angels, human persons, animals, plants, and inanimate bodies. And that's it. That's, that's all of reality. Now, in the created order, Human persons occupy a special place. How so? Well, as, as a composite of spirit and matter, the human person is a sort of bridge. You might think of them that way. Sort of a bridge between the part of creation, which is the realm of the pure spirits, i.e. the realm of the angels, 
and the part of creation, which is the realm of purely bodily beings, both living and non-living. Now, since the human person is a composite of spirit and matter, or in other words, since the human person is a subsistent intellectual soul and a human body, we have to understand something regarding each of these intrinsic principles and causes if we are to have an adequate understanding of what the human person is and why he is the way that he is. Okay. At the same time, it's the composite of these principles. That is to say, it's the complete human person who is more known to us than either of these principles. That is to say, than either his, his spiritual soul or his body just by itself. And because of this, uh, we have to begin our investigation of man's nature there. That is, by considering man as a substance complete in himself. Okay? So that's what we have to focus in on first and foremost is, is man as a complete whole. Now, we've just situated man within the context of all of reality. And if we want to understand man as a composite whole within the context of reality, uh, we might ask this question and attempt to answer it. How does man compare to other created substances? Okay. How does man compare to other created substances? Well, we know he's lower than the angels. He's less perfect than them, naturally speaking. But at the same time, he is higher than all the brute animals, all plants, and all inanimate bodies, naturally speaking. Okay. Again, he occupies a kind of middle position okay, within the created order. Now let's ask ourselves this. Uh, how is man both like and unlike the substances which are lower than him? Okay, and this will occupy uh, us for some time answering this question. How is man both like and unlike the substances which are lower than him? Well, let's begin by, by comparing the human person uh, to inanimate things, and then we'll compare them to plants and then to uh, brute animals. And this will help us to see how man is both like and unlike these things. So what does man have in common with inanimate bodies, with things like earth and fire and air and water, to name uh, the, old, the old school of four elements? Okay. What does man have in common with these things? Well, perhaps the most obvious thing is this, that they are substances having three dimensions, having length, breadth, and depth, with various determinate qualities. And the same can be said about the human person. Okay, the substance or the human person is a is a substance having three dimensions, length, breadth, and depth, and he has various determinate qualities. Now, of course, there's a lot more to man than that. So man has that in common with the inanimate bodies, plus he has a lot more to him. And that's a sure indication that he's more perfect than these inanimate things. Next, let's compare him to plants. Okay, So what do we have in common with the plants? Well, here Aristotle tells us that, that we share with the plants various uh, powers, various natural abilities what he calls the vegetative powers. And what are these? Well, these are, are three uh, in number. There are principally three vegetative uh, powers. First of all, there's, there's the ability that plants have and that we have and that other animals have for that matter uh, to assimilate food to ourselves, right? So we can take in substances that are not ourselves and we can transform those substances into ourselves. And this is what we do when we eat, right? This is what animals do when they eat. This is what plants do uh, when they, in a sense, eat, right? When they take in nutrients, water, and so on. They take in those foreign substances, substances that are not themselves, they transform them into themselves. Then the second principle of vegetative power that we have in common with plants is the ability to grow, right? To grow to a, 
determinant mature size to attain uh, to what St. Thomas calls our due quantity, okay, which admits obviously of, of a range. And then, and then third and finally, we have a reproductive power, okay, which enables us to, to bring into being other individuals of our species. And Aristotle tells us in his great work, The De Anima, that this power, the reproductive power, is the most defining power of, of plants and of living things on this earth. And he says it's the most divine of the vegetative powers. How so? Well, because it's through this power, the reproductive power, he says that that plants are able to attain to a certain kind of immortality, not a kind, not an individual immortality, of course, but a sort of immortality that might belong to their species. That is to say, that through through bringing into into existence into being uh, individuals of of their kind, plants attempt to perpetuate their their species forever. And unless something you know gets in the way or stops that, it seems as if that, in principle, uh, can can happen. And Aristotle tells us that in doing this, in attempting to keep their species alive forever, plants are plants are aiming at imitating God to the extent that they can. They're they're attempting to, uh, by nature, they're attempting to imitate God's eternity. And something similar can be said regarding animals and even human persons, okay, insofar as we all uh, procreate or, or reproduce and therefore uh, attempt to get our species to, to last forever. So these are the three principal vegetative powers that we have in common with plants. Now, once, once you, once you uh, list off those vegetative powers, you basically list off the, the highest abilities uh, that belong to plants. Obviously, there's a lot more that belongs to us besides those abilities. And again, this shows that we're more perfect than this thing to which we're comparing ourselves to plants because we have everything that they have, at least generically speaking, plus we have more. How are we like animals uh, to compare ourselves to uh, the next uh, creatures going up the ladder? Well, as you know, Animals have vegetative powers, uh, just like plants do and just like we do. But in addition to having those powers, animals also have sense powers, right? And it's really the sense powers that define animals and distinguish them from other kinds of things. If you ask, generally speaking, what is an animal? An animal is a sentient living body, right? An animal is a living body capable of sensing capable of knowing through its senses uh, the world around it. Now, obviously, there's a hierarchy amongst animals. Some animals have uh, have fewer senses than others, and so you can rank animals based on, on which senses they have or which senses they don't have. Many animals, in addition to having sense powers, they also have a locomotive power, which is the ability... Uh, to move themselves from one determinate place to another. Now, let's talk a little bit about the sense powers that belong to animals. Uh, these can be divided into different sorts of sense powers. When you first hear the term sense powers, you probably think of our senses, right? Our, our sense of sight, our sense of hearing, our senses of taste, touch, and smell, and you're right to do so. Okay, These are the sense powers that I think are are most familiar to us, right? They're they're most evident to us. So we have uh, obviously five external senses, and the through these external senses we grasp many features of the external world. Okay? Aristotle tells us that that there are various sensibles, uh, that is to say, various sensible qualities that belong to the things in the world around us that can only be grasped by this sense or that sense. So for example, uh, particular colors 
as they exist in the world around us, they can only be grasped. Those things can only be grasped through the sense of sight. Particular sounds can only be grasped through the sense of of hearing, and so on for uh, various other things. Right? Particular uh, scents or, or or odors, particular flavors, and then particular tangible qualities. And can, those can only be grasped by by uh, our our individual senses, okay, like our sense of sight, uh, hearing, and so forth. There are other sensible qualities in things which can be grasped by two or more senses. So, for example, the shape of an object, okay, that's a sensible characteristic uh, that can be grasped both by the sense of sight and by the sense of touch. Okay, Also, uh, something like the size of something, right? How big or how small something is that can be that can be grasped both by a sense of sight and by the sense of touch. Uh, the number that belongs to uh, something that's in front of us, uh, whether something's moving or at rest, these are also various uh, sensible features of reality that can be grasped by two or more senses. Okay. So what I've just distinguished uh, for you uh, to use the, the philosophical uh, names are what are called the proper sensibles versus the common sensibles. So the proper sensibles are those sensible qualities and things that can be grasped only by one sense, whereas common sensibles are sensible features in in things that belong to things which can be grasped by two or more senses. That's one way to distinguish the proper sensibles from the common sensibles. Okay. So anyways, uh, here I've just been speaking about our, our external senses, right? The things that we normally recognize as our sense powers, sight, hearing, taste, touch, and smell. Now, above and beyond uh, our external senses, we also have some internal senses, okay? And the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition distinguishes four principal internal senses that all human persons have. And they go by these names. Excuse me. Uh, The common sense, the imagination, the cogitative sense, and the memory. Okay, the common sense, the imagination, the cogitative sense, and the memory. Okay. Let's talk briefly about about each of these. I'm not going to spend too much time. Talking about them, we can come back to these if you if you like to. But I just want to uh, distinguish them just for, just for the record. Both the common sense and the cogitative sense are what you might call uh, perceptive uh, senses or perceptive powers. The powers enable us to grasp various uh, features of reality that aren't grasped that aren't grasped uh, in themselves by by any of our five external senses. And then the other two internal senses that I mentioned, the imagination and the memory, they're both storehouses. They're sense powers that that are storehouses, so to speak, of the various things that we grasp uh, through our common sense and our cogitative sense. So our imagination, Aristotle and Thomas teach, uh, our imagination stores the various things that we grasp through what he calls our common sense. The memory stores the various things that we grasp through our cogitative sense. Now let me go back to the common sense and the cogitative sense just to give you some some appreciation of of what we grasp, what we know by these powers, okay? Uh, The first thing to mention is this, that just like like with our external senses, we, we grasp particular things. And it's really important to see that we grasp particular things uh, with our senses. Well, so too with all of our internal senses, we're only grasping particular things. Okay. So again, by my sense of sight, I see this particular color, you know, that's in the desktop or that particular color that's in the wall. I, I don't know color in general. I don't know the universal nature of color through my sense of sight. I just know this particular color, or that particular color. And the same goes for my other senses. Through my sense of hearing, I, I grasp, you know, this particular sound or that particular sound uh, and so on. I'm actually grasping a lot of sounds in the other room for my kids. I don't know if you can, if you can hear that, if that's coming through uh, for you guys. So, okay. Yeah, you can hear them too. So 
See, I, I planned it that way so that right as I started to talk about particular sounds, you, you would hear all of those particular sounds. So, yeah. I, I should warn you guys, yeah, my wife and I have a, we have a bunch of kids. We have 14 kids. And so uh, if, if you hear kid noises in the background, most likely it's coming from my house and, and no one else's house. So four of them are at college though, so they're not all here. So only 10 are at home. All right, so back to the, the internal senses. So through all of our sense powers, whether external or internal, we grasp particular features of reality, particular features of the world around us. Let's ask the question, what are some things that we grasp with our common sense, which are not grasped by either this or that external sense? Okay, here's an example. Take something as, as mundane as, as a sugar cube, okay? Let's say you have a sugar cube, and you say, well, this sugar cube is both white and it's sweet. Okay, we all know that. You grasp through your sense of sight this particular whiteness that belongs to the sugar cube, right? You grasp through your sense of taste this particular sweetness that belongs to the sugar cube. Now, if I were to ask you, is this whiteness that you perceive in the sugar cube different from this sweetness that you perceive in the sugar cube? Are those two different sensible characteristics that belong to the sugar cube? You'd probably say, yeah, they are. This whiteness is not this sweetness, and this sweetness is not this whiteness. There are two different sensible characteristics or sensible qualities that belong to one and the same sugar cube, right? Yes. Okay, we all see that. We all we all know that that's true. Now the question becomes, by which sense power in us do we know that this whiteness is not this sweetness? By which sense power in us do we distinguish this whiteness from this sweetness? Well, here's the rub. It can't be by any of our five external senses that we know that distinction. Why not? Because by whatever power we know that distinction, that power has to be capable of knowing both of those sensible qualities in order to be able to say that this sensible quality is not that sensible quality. If you look at a piece of paper, say you have a piece of paper uh, you know, that, you've, that you've typed out or something and printed it off, okay, well, you can look at the piece of paper and you see the, the, black, uh, the black type on it and you can say this whiteness is not this blackness, right? You can you can you can make that distinction between this whiteness and this blackness on the piece of paper, and you're able to make that distinction simply using your sense of sight because your sense of sight knows both this whiteness and this blackness and is able to distinguish the one from the other. But we have no external sense whereby we can know both this whiteness and this sweetness, right? So it can't be by any of our external senses that we make that distinction between this whiteness and the sweetness. Rather, there must be some sense power in us, which is none of our five external senses, that's capable of knowing not only all of the, the sensible characteristics that we know through the sense of sight, but also all of the sensible characteristics that we know through the sense of taste. And on top of those, all of the sensible characteristics that we know through the sense of hearing, smell, and touch. What is this power within us? It's called the common sense. It goes by that name, the sensus communis in Latin. Okay. This is not to be, this power is not to be just is not to be confused with what we uh, sometimes call common sense when you say, oh, he has a lot of common sense or he has no common sense. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. That's something different. Okay, what we're calling the common sense now is is simply a sense power in us uh, that grasps all of the particular sensible characteristics that are known by our five external senses. And it's a sense power uh, which is able to distinguish between all of these sensible characteristics that are grasped by all five of our external senses. 
it's by the common sense that we distinguish between this whiteness and this sweetness and many other such things. Okay. Now our imagination is a storehouse. It's a, it's a, it's a retaining power or retentive power uh, in us, which, which retains or stores all of the particular sensible qualities that we grasp through our five external senses and our common sense and the distinctions between them and so on. Okay. Now let me just uh, throw into the mix, the cogitative sense. Okay. This one's uh, even, even uh, more, more interesting and, and more weird in a way than the common sense. Okay. When we look out at the world around us, not only do we grasp particular sensible qualities like this color, uh, this sound, this shape, you know, this size, this motion, this rest, not only do we grasp all those things, but we also grasp at some level the particular things to which those sensible characteristics belong. So when I when I look out at the world around me and I see I see my son, I not only perceive with my senses his his color and his height and his shape and his motion, but I in some way grasp through my senses, him, the one to whom all of those sensible characteristics belong. And it's for this reason that I say, I see my son. I don't just say, I see this, this collection of sensible characteristics. No, it's not, it's not that. It's not, that's not the full story, right? You see someone okay, to whom those belong. And it's precisely through grasping the sensible characteristics that belong to that person that you in some way grasp uh, the, the owner of those sensible characteristics, the person to whom those belong. Or if you have a dog, let's say Fido, right? You, you not only grasp Fido's motion and his odor and his shape and his size, uh, but you grasp Fido. You grasp this dog, right? You say, I see Fido. Again, I don't just see this collection of sensible characteristics. I, I, I do see them, but I see them as belonging to Fido. Okay? So there's got to be a sense power in us, and this is the power that we call the cogitative power, that enables us to grasp various particular sensible substances okay, to which the, uh, the sensible characteristics that we directly grasp through our senses belong. And then we have our memory, which is the storehouse of, of the things that we grasp through our cogitative senses. Okay. By cogitative senses, we grasp other things besides these particular substances, which are the owners of these particular sensible characteristics, but I'm not going to go into that right now. Okay, so anyways, I just wanted to kind of give you a lay of the land of, of our internal senses. So again, we have four internal senses. We obviously have five external senses. And so that means that we as human persons, we have a, a total of nine principal senses, okay? And these are amongst our sense powers. Now, higher animals, okay, like Fido and your cat and, and primates and deer and bears and other such critters like these, they, they have all of these same powers that, that I just mentioned, okay? The only difference in, in them is that what I call our cogitative sense, in them it's usually called in the tradition uh, the estimate of power or the estimate of sense. Okay, and there's a reason for that, uh, which we can get into later if anyone's interested. But, but what I've been describing thus far as powers that belong to us are powers that we share in common with, with the higher animals. Now, in addition to having sense powers which are knowing powers which are powers by which we 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 know features particular features of reality we also have uh, something called sense appetites sense appetites okay and these go by and we actually have two sense appetites uh, if anyone's interested we have uh, they go by weird names we have what's called a concupiscible appetite and an irascible appetite 
a concupiscible appetite and an irascible appetite. And it's in these two sense appetites, or it's through these two sense appetites, that we experience our, our emotions. Okay? So these sense appetites, the concupiscible appetite and the irascible appetite, these are these are sense-level appetites which incline us towards various sensible goods, and they incline us away from various sensible evils. Okay. And, and we we experience this inclination towards uh, various sensible goods and this inclination away from various uh, sensible evils through through our emotions, through being moved uh, in our sense appetites. Okay, the emotions of our sense appetites, the different ones are what we call our emotions. And we have, we as human persons have 11 principal emotions, six of which belong to the concupiscible appetite and five of which belong to the irascible appetite. And I'll just list these off in case, in case you're, you're keeping track and, I won't say a whole lot about them right now, but we can come back to them. Uh, so just to kind of catalog the principal emotions that belong to us as human persons, the six that belong to the concupiscible appetite are the following. Love, desire, and joy. And then opposite those three are hate, aversion, and sorrow. So you have love, desire, and joy. And then you have hate, aversion, and sorrow. Love and, and hate are obviously opposed. Those are opposed emotions. Desire and aversion are opposed emotions. And joy and sorrow are opposed emotions. And then we have five more, uh, which we experience through our irascible appetite. What are these? These go by the names hope and despair. Okay, those are opposed emotions, hope and despair. We also have daring and fear. These again are opposed emotions, daring and fear. And then lastly, we have anger, which has no opposite. Okay, so again, hope and despair, daring and fear, and anger. Those are the five emotions uh, which belong to the irascible appetite. Now, uh, as with the the sense powers, which are our senses or our our sense-knowing powers, these sense appetites also uh, belong to higher animals. Okay? Higher animals have sense appetites, and they experience emotions uh, as as well as we do. And if if you have a dog or a cat, well, you've probably seen this in the flesh, right? They clearly experience emotions uh, like we do. So, if all of what I've just described belongs not only to us, but also to animals, at least to higher animals, we might ask, well, uh, what distinguishes us as human persons from them? Well, this is where our intellectual powers come in. <clears throat> so in addition to having all of the aforesaid sense powers, we also have intellectual powers. And we can divide our intellectual powers uh, into our knowing powers and what's called our intellectual appetite. Now, when we talk about our intellectual knowing powers, we're really talking about uh, our, our intellect, the human intellect, and those powers that belong to the human intellect. And, and in the tradition, in the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition, uh, one always distinguishes between what's called our possible intellect and our agent intellect. Okay, so those are two really distinct intellectual powers that belong to us. These are uh, the, the two intellectual powers that, uh, in, in some sense, uh, make up the human intellect, okay? What's the possible intellect and what's the agent intellect? Well, the possible intellect, just to be uh, very brief here, and we can come back to this later in a lot more detail, if you like, the possible intellect is, is that intellectual power by which we understand what things are, by which we understand what's true and what's false, by which we, we reason from premises to conclusions. Huh? 
And what's called our agent intellect, this is an intellectual power in us that enables us to abstract uh, the universal natures of things from the various particular things that we sense in the world around us. Okay. So we all know that we not only that we not only know uh, this particular color, let's say this redness, and that particular color, let's say this whiteness, and that other particular color, this blackness. We not only know these particular colors, but we all know that we also know the very nature of color. We know what's common to all colors. Okay. When I when I bring forth in my in my intellect my understanding of color, or when I use the word color, that signifies that signifies my intellectual grasp of color. Okay. Which is that which is common to all particular colors. Here's another uh, similar case. If you go up to a blackboard and you start drawing triangles, right? Every triangle that you draw on the blackboard is a particular triangle. Well, we not only we not only have knowledge of particular triangles, as we as as we get when we look at the blackboard and we see all the different triangles that we've drawn, but we, in addition to that, we have a knowledge of, we have a universal knowledge, of that which all triangles have okay we have a universal knowledge of that which makes all triangles to be triangles and we can even give a formulation of our intellectual grasp of that nature in words if someone asks you what is common to all triangles you can say plain figure contained by three straight lines that's what's common to all triangles okay all the triangles that you've ever seen all the triangles that you will ever see all the triangles that that have ever been all the triangles that that could be, but will never be all the triangles that will ever be. They all have that in common. They're all, they all have that nature, plain figure contained by three straight lines. That's something that we grasp with our intellect. So notice this, we, we, we start out by seeing or by, by experiencing with our sense powers, various individual things. And then somehow we're able to abstract with our intellects, we're able to abstract that which is common to all of the individual instances that we th- that we see through our senses. That power in us, that intellectual power in us, that enables us to do that intellectual abstraction of the nature from the particulars, of the universal from the particulars, is what we call our agent intellect. Okay, so we have an agent intellect which enables us to abstract universals from particulars. And we have a possible intellect, which uh, holds the universals that we've abstracted. And that's also our intellectual power, the possible intellect, whereby we, we think about the universal uh, concepts that we have abstracted or the universal natures that we have abstracted from the world around us. Okay, so this, uh, uh, this intellectual power that I'm describing which has as its two parts, so to speak, the agent intellect, the possible intellect. This is a power that we have, which the higher animals do not have, and which no other animals have. In addition to having uh, an intellect, we also have what's called an intellectual appetite, or more commonly, it's called the will. Okay. Now, what's the difference, you might ask, between the will? the intellectual appetite, and those sense appetites that we talked about earlier. Well, the sense appetites are are appetites that incline us either towards particular sensible goods or away from particular sensible evils. By contrast, using our wills or intellectual appetites, we can go after, uh, we can go after something that is universally good. Okay. Something that is, that is good, but spiritual and not material. Think of this, for example. If you see a, a piece of a piece of cake on the table, right? And let's say you love cake. Well, you see the cake with your eyes. You might smell it across the room, and and having grasped the cake through your external senses, you're inclined to go enjoy the cake right? 
So once you once you sense the cake, or once you sense particular features of the cake, your sense appetite kicks in. Some of the emotion you feel some of the emotions that belong to your concupiscible appetite, like love and desire, and so you go over, and you enjoy the cake. Well, we can only we can only be inclined by our sense appetites either towards or away from something that we're able to grasp with our external senses or with our internal senses. Keep that in mind. Now let's think about God for a second. So God is purely spiritual. He is the infinite uncreated good. In fact, you can say he's he's infinite uncreated goodness itself. We're able to know certain things about him just by the natural light of human reason. We're able to know that he is infinite and uncreated goodness itself just by the natural light of human reason. And guess what? We're able to love God. We're able to love God. Okay, even just at the level of human nature. Okay, we can bring forth an act of love for God. Now, when we do that, guess what? We're not we're not bringing forth the emotion of love. Why not? Because as I just mentioned, we can only be inclined uh, towards something or away from something with our sense appetites if we can sense that thing through our external senses or through our internal senses. Can we sense God through either our external senses or internal senses? No, we can't. We can only know God through our intellects. And accordingly, the, the, the appetite that we use, the appetitive power that we use in order to love God, to love this infinite uncreated goodness, this purely spiritual goodness that is God, it can't be a sense appetite. It's got to be something higher. It's got to be what we're calling the will or the intellectual appetite. Okay? So to kind of uh, bring this back to where we started from, if we compare ourselves to animals, to what we commonly call brute animals, we can see that while they have vegetative powers and sense powers like we do, they don't have these intellectual powers that I'm, that I'm trying to delineate, either our intellectual knowing powers or an intellectual appetite. So therefore, we have within ourselves all of the powers that that the higher animals have, plus we have more, okay? And this is a basis for saying that we're higher than they are, okay? So we're higher than the inanimate bodies that we find on this earth and in this universe. We're higher than the plants, and we're higher than all animals, even the higher animals, okay? Hope that makes a little bit of sense. Now, here, here's something else I, I want to mention uh, in connection with what we're talking about. So all of these powers that I've just been describing, the vegetative powers, the sense powers, the intellectual powers, these are all, in, in terms of uh, Aristotle's categories, I don't know if everyone's familiar with Aristotle's categories, uh, these, these are all what he would call uh, natural powers or qualities, okay? These are all natural powers or qualities. They're all a kind of all of these, all of these powers that I've described are a kind of what he would call accident. That is to say, all of these are features of reality that depend upon some subject in which they exist in order to exist. So just like something like shape doesn't exist on its own, but it always exists in some body that has that shape, so too the vegetative powers, the sense powers, and the intellectual powers, they all inhere in some particular subject, okay? They all have some proper subject that they depend upon in order to exist. Now, if you look at the human person and you ask, and you ask, uh, in what part of the human person or in what parts of the human person do these powers inhere, we have to make a distinction. Okay, remember, we're composites 
of spirit and matter. We're composites of soul and body. In which part or parts of us do these natural powers inhere? Well, the vegetative powers and the sense powers, okay, both the sense-knowing powers and the sense appetites, these all inhere in the composite of soul and body. That is to say, they all inhere in uh, the whole human person. That is to say, not necessarily in every part of the human person, but in the in the compo- in the the composite of spirit and body, or in the composite of soul and body. Huh? They all depend upon that in order to exist. The intellectual powers alone. Okay, both our intellectual knowing powers and our wills. They inhere, and you can show this through philosophical demonstration, they inhere only in our souls. Only in our souls. Now, why is this why is this uh, worthy of note? Well, one reason is is as follows. What I just mentioned has implications for what life is like for the human soul after death. Okay? At death. At the death of the human person, what happens? The spiritual soul of the human person separates from the human person's body. That's what death essentially consists in. Now, if all of our vegetative powers and all of our sense powers depend on the soul-body composite, when the soul separates from the body at death, what happens to all those powers, the vegetative powers and the sense powers? They're all, in some sense, done away with. They're all in some sense destroyed. They no longer belong to us, at least in the complete in the complete way that they used to belong to us. Huh? The only two powers that belong to the separated human soul after death, the only two powers that, that are fully intact that belong to the separated human soul after death are what? The intellectual knowing powers and the will. Okay? So the separated human soul is, is capable of knowing intellectually and capable of willing, but it's not capable of, 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 of sensing. It's not capable of feeling any emotions. It's not capable of, of eating <laughs> or, or growing or anything like that. Okay. Now, when we think of this, this enables us uh, to compare very briefly. I'll just do this very briefly. The separated human soul to the created substances that are above the human person. Who are the created substances that are above the human person? The angels. Okay. And as we know from divine revelation, there are nine orders of angels from the seraphim all the way down uh, to the angels. And it's important for us to note that. There are both similarities and differences between the separated human soul and the angels. What are some similarities? Well, some obvious ones are are these, that the separated human soul is purely spiritual. Angels are purely spiritual as well. The separated human soul has an intellect and a will. Angels have intellects and wills as well, right? Each angel has an intellect and a will. What are some differences? Well, the separated human soul is not a complete person. There's a real sense in which you can say of someone's separated human soul uh, that he ain't the man that he used to be. Okay, Because the separated human soul by itself is not a complete human person. It's it's the principal part. it's It's the most important part of the human person, but it's just by itself, not a complete human person, huh? A sign that that's true is that it by itself is not able to exercise all of the powers that belong to a complete human person, okay? So, again, the separate human soul by itself is not a complete human person. It's not a, com- it's not a complete substance, huh? Angels, even though they don't have bodies, they are complete angelic persons they are complete substances okay they have they have their complete angelic natures okay without needing bodies 
So that's a big difference between the separated human soul and, and an angel. Huh? Here's another big difference. As we know, we come to have intellectual knowledge by first having sense knowledge, right? So first we sense things using our external senses and our internal senses. And then based on that sense knowledge, we abstract intellectual knowledge, right? We come to have intellectual knowledge. Well, angels don't have any bodies. They don't have any senses. Do they have intellectual knowledge? Absolutely. Absolutely they do. But their intellectual knowledge is not dependent upon first having sense knowledge. So, so they, they know in a higher way than we know. So those are a couple similarities and a couple differences between ourselves or the chief part of ourselves, huh? the separated human soul, and the created substances, or you could say the created persons uh, that, that are above us, i.e. the angels. Now, let me just mention one more thing connected with this consideration, which I think is important, and we're going to want to bear this in mind, uh, especially for our classes uh, in the upcoming weeks. Both men and angels are made in the image of God, in as much as they both have intellectual natures. Okay? So insofar as we have intellectual natures and insofar as angels have intellectual natures, we can both be described as being made in the image of God. That being said, angels bear the image of God more perfectly than we do. Okay, So we're made in the image of God insofar as we have intellectual natures. Angels are made in the image of God insofar as they have intellectual natures. But since they have higher intellectual natures than we have, they are made in the image of God in a fuller sense or in a more perfect sense uh, than, than we are. Okay. That's not, that's not to, to say that we're lame or something. No, we're, 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 we're great. I mean, so far as we bear the image of God, we're just not as good as they are. Okay. All right. Now, Given the ground that we've covered right now, I, I want to just kind of uh, try to wrap things up before we go to the break. And I want to want to bring in I want to bring in uh, a, a classical text that many of you might be familiar with, and that's Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. Okay. As of now our understanding of the human person is good as far as it goes, but it's also quite incomplete. I think we can say that what we've, what we've delineated regarding the human person puts us in a slightly better position than Boethius was at, at the beginning of this great work called the Constellation of Philosophy. You might remember that in the Constellation of Philosophy, Boethius, at the beginning, he finds himself in jail, right? He's, he's been stripped of all of his temporal goods. Uh, he's in jail. He's going to die. It's not a good situation. And he's very bummed out. He's, he's extremely sad. He's kind of at his wit's end. And Lady Philosophy his old teacher, she appears to him and she helps to console him. She helps to move him from his sorrowful state to a state of great happiness based upon the truths of philosophy, which, uh, which she had taught him in the past and which she reminds him of. Okay. Now let me read a little bit of, of the text. If, if you want to look this up on your own, it's from book one, uh, prose number six. Book one, prose number six. One of the first things that Lady Philosophy does when she comes uh, to meet Boethius in his, in his sorrowful state is she tries to diagnose his condition. She tries to find out exactly what's wrong with him so that then she can, she can heal him. Okay, as as a doctor would heal 
the patient only after having figured out what's wrong with the patient, what the patient's symptoms are, what the underlying uh, problems are, and so forth. So here's a little bit of the text. Towards the beginning of, of Prose 6, this starts about line 3. She says, do you think that this world is moved by random and chance occurrences, or do you believe that there is some guidance of reason present within it? There is no way, I said, this is Boethius speaking, there is no way, I said, that I would ever think that things so well-defined move by chance random by chance randomness. No, I know that God the Creator presides over his creation, nor could there ever come a day that would drive me away from the truth of this belief. And so it is, she said, for just a little while ago, you claim, you proclaimed it in verse, and you lamented the fact that mortals alone have no share in the guidance of the divine. As for the rest, you were not budging from the position that they were controlled by reason. But fancy that, what utterly amazes me is why you're sick at all, given your solid grounding in such a healthy belief. But let's look a little more deeply. I can guess that there is something missing. So tell me this, since you have no doubt that the world is controlled by God, do you understand what are the rudders by which it is governed? And Boethius answers, I can hardly understand the meaning of your question, let alone venture to respond to the matter at issue. She said, so I wasn't deceived, was I? There is something missing, like a gaping hole in the masonry of a wall, and through it, the disease of confusing emotions has crept into your mind. But tell me this, do you remember what is the goal of things or to what end the striving of all nature strives? Boethius responds, I had heard it once, but grief has blunted my memory. But surely you know the source from which all things have proceeded, says philosophy. Boethius says, I do know, and I answered that it was God. Lady Philosophy, so how can it happen that if you understand the origin of things, you do not know what is their goal? But such are the habits of confusing emotions. While they have the power to move a man from his position, they do not have the power to pluck him out completely and uproot him from himself. But I would like you to answer this as well. Do you remember what you are, a human being? I said, well, of course I remember. She says, so will you be able to define for me what a human being is? Are you asking me this, whether I know that I am a rational and mortal animal? I do know it, and I admit that that is what I am. She said, and you've learned that you are nothing other than that? Nothing, says Boethius. She says, now I know that there is another and it is possibly the greatest cause of your disease. You have ceased to know who you yourself are. Okay, so that's the text. And I would say, as of now, in our, in our look at, at the human person, we're in a little better position than Boethius is in his incomplete understanding uh, here at the beginning of the Constellation of Philosophy. Notice Boethius says, I, I know who my first cause is, God. And I know what I am. I'm a rational, mortal being, right? I'm a rational, mortal animal. And Lady Philosophy says, okay, that's good, but you're still missing something. You're still missing some things, in fact. You don't know what the final end of man is, and you don't have a complete grasp of what man is. Okay? Now, where are we with respect to Boethius? Well, we've said a little bit more about man than simply that he's a rational mortal animal. We've said that he's a rational mortal animal made in the image of God. Okay? And that's one of the main things that Boethius is, is missing in the Constellation of Philosophy. So we're a little ahead of him. But like him, we don't yet know, we don't yet know what the end of man is. Okay? 
that's the principal thing that's missing uh, from our grasp right now is what is man's end? What is his final cause? And it's so important for us to know that because the end or the final cause is the cause that in some way illumines all of the other causes. Remember, Aristotle teaches that there are four kinds of causes, right? There's a material cause, there's a formal cause, there's an efficient or what he calls agent cause, and then there's a final cause. We know three out of those four causes with respect to man already. What are the material and formal causes of man? His body and his soul, right? Man's body stands to his soul as matter stands to form. What is the first efficient or agent cause of man? God. But what is man's end? What is his final cause? What is that cause that in some way illumines all of the other causes? That's what we're going to investigate, right? And that's what we're going to dedicate these, these next several weeks to, to, to doing, is to delving into what are final causes, both on the level of nature and on the level of supernature. Okay, so that's where we're going. All right, so why don't we, at this point, let's take a break. Uh, let's go ahead and, and uh, break until quarter after. It's about 10 minutes. Come back and, yeah, if you have any questions, comments, etc., we'll we'll start the discussion. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.